My name is David. If you are new here, I am the pastor, and I have the distinct privilege of being able to uh, share with you this story this morning, and I am excited. I'm going to warn you. This is not, this is not my normal kind of thing that I do, um, and I'm going to ask for a little bit of patience as we go through this morning. Um, in my office, you can go in my office after church if you would like, but you know, there are three whiteboards full of material uh, for today. And I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled to try to get it down to something that I think would fit in the normal amount of time. And uh, I just couldn't cut it down any more than I've cut it down for this, for this morning without really suffering and sacrificing some of the ideas. So even, even though this is your first time, I'm just asking for a little bit of grace for me this morning. That, uh, that you understand. This isn't normally how it goes, but I think once we get through it, you'll understand why it was so critical for us to have a lot of this stuff in there. So to get us started, I would like you to actually stand again because you may be sitting for the next uh, uh, longest duration of your life. So I want you to stand up, if you will, and we're going to kind of stretch you know, raise your hands up over the sky if you want to, get the blood flowing a little bit, and then stay standing while we read today's scripture, which is from Luke 24. By the way, this is not the only scripture for today, but uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 8. I'm going to have to read it off the screen. you have it back there, Kyle? On the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, "'Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen.'" Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be, li- be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that your word would reign supreme in our conversation that we have, that, that it would be you who not only speaks to me and to our hearts, but that you who speaks through me and everything is for your glory this morning. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to receive your truth, that you would teach us through your truth to live in your ways, and by that truth to identify and reject the lies of the enemy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. Well, we have a a bulletin for you, but it's on the YouVersion Bible app, and we're going to put the screen up for you so you can go find that if you want. You can download it for free the UYOU version Bible app, and then you go and follow these directions here on the screen. Click the More tab, and then uh, click on Events, and then you'll be able to see 6-8 Church right there at the top of the list. And I would really strongly encourage you to do that today of all days, because as you open it up, you'll see there's about 10,000 verses in there that we're going to cover through this week. No exaggeration. Well, maybe not 10,000 verses, maybe 10,000 words, though. But we're going to cover these in in, uh, solid fashion, and I would love for you to take that and uh, be able to reread some of that throughout the week as you think about what God shares with us this morning. But today we're going to be focusing on that idea, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. 
Why do you look for the living among the dead? 360-818-4399. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if you have an answer to this question I'm about to ask, I'd love for you to send in your answers. But um, don't you hate it when a movie or a TV or something ends in a bad way? You know what I'm talking about? Don't you just hate it when, when you're watching a movie? Or even worse is when you've watched this TV show, right? And maybe you've watched a show that lasted for six, seven, eight, nine, ten seasons, maybe, maybe even longer, and then, and then it has a bad ending, right? Here's what I'm looking for when I go to watch a movie. I'm looking for a time to escape. I don't want to have to think about life for at least a couple of hours, right? I mean, I like to go and I just like to sit down and I just kind of get lost in the movie. And I love it when, the, when there's a really good movie and the story just pulls me in and I'm just drawn in to this great storyline. But you know what's, what's worse than, than anything almost on the planet? Maybe I exaggerate, but I hate it. I know um, I'm not the only one. Is when you spend those two hours watching something and then it has the worst ending and you just have this feeling of, what did I just do? I just wasted those two hours. That's two hours of my life I can never get back. What just, what just happened? And it's this awful thing. Anyone, am I the only one that feels this way? It's like, like you're watching, watching, you know, maybe some of you remember the Seinfeld, right? The Seinfeld season series finale, right? And, you know, I, I didn't watch much of Seinfeld, but I watched the series finale with friends who watched this who, who had been watching Seinfeld all these years. And I just remember at that finale the feeling of complete and utter dismay, like they had been betrayed by these people who had been with them and they had built this relationship up for years over watching this show. It's like, how could you do that to me? Well, I just wasted that hour of my life. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You invest some time in a movie or a TV show and then, and then it disappoints you. With the ending, it's like we watch movies, you know, with the Oscar movies that they say that you're supposed to watch because, you know, they're nominated for Academy Awards. I'll just tell you, don't ever watch any movie that's been nominated for an Academy Award because they all have bad endings. Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, worst ending ever. My, uh, I, I, I dislike the movie Titanic for a couple of reasons. I like the historical aspects of the movie. I hate the fact that there was room on the door and that Rose was just being selfish and couldn't let Leo up on the door. I mean, let's get over that. And then uh, at the end, you know, this, this old woman, you know, just kind of creeps up to the edge and she's got this multi-million dollar necklace and she just very, very in a very bad acting kind of a way just, <gasps> oops and drops this thing that was like this epic part of the movie into the ocean for no one, and someone just said maybe they found it. Hopefully they found it, and then they can go just kind of... I was, was going to say maybe they could just go whack her over the head with it and just say, what were you thinking? But I don't know if she's still alive. So, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. But you know what, I, you know what I'm feeling, right? It's like, why waste all of this time and just have this bad ending? But... I don't think it's just with movies and TV shows. I think the same thing happens for us in life, doesn't it? It's like you've been working hard on something. You know, maybe, maybe back when you were in school and you worked hard on this project and then, and then you thought it was going to be great, you know, a science fair project or one of the, you know, the arts festival projects or whatever it was. Um, yeah, Myth, Mythbusters proved it would sink. Okay, I'm glad it sank. But... Um, 
you've been working on a science fair project for a long time, and you know you invested months in it, and you take it and you put it, and then they judge it, and you get a low grade. It's just what I just. That's not what I wanted. I, I invested all of this time. Or maybe you've been working on something around the house and you put a lot of effort into it and then all of a sudden it just, it's not going to work for one reason or another. And all that you had been working on, all you've been hoping that would come together is just falling apart right in front of you. Something comes along and knocks you off course, right? I think, I think this is a pretty common feeling that we go through in our lives. You know, maybe it's at work and we're hoping and working hard to get a promotion and then they decide, well, they're going to go with an outside hire, or maybe you have a good job, and then all of a sudden they come along and say, hey, you know what? It's time for us to make a change here. I think uh, we're going to let you go and bring someone, in else, someone else in to do your job. Or, you know, you've had a relationship come to an end. Just out of the blue, it's just you didn't expect it to happen, but a, ra- a relationship ended and just kind of blew up in front of you in an unexpected way. And now you're asking yourself this question, I just wasted so much of my life. Maybe you lost your house, you find yourself stranded without a home, without somewhere to call home, just kind of fell out from underneath you. Maybe a loved one died unexpectedly and you just weren't, weren't ready for what was going to happen and now you're asking the question, what now? Where do I go from here? We have a similar experience in, in our family. Uh, a couple of years ago, almost two years ago right now, uh, we, we decided we were selling our house and we had found this house that was out in, uh, out in the Fargo Lake area. I don't know if you know where that is, but it was a, a nice house, huge house, way, way nicer house than we'd ever be able to afford. And it was a foreclosure. And so we decided we're going to take this risk, right? And we're going to sell our house and hope that we can maybe be able to get this house. And so we actually were able to sell our house and we sold it and we moved out and we moved into my grandpa's old house to kind of rent for a few months until we figure out where we were going to land forever. And all this time we're just kind of working on the process of buying this house. We really wanted this house. I mean, it was, it was nice for, what, for what, anything that we would ever be able to have. I think it had like five, six bedrooms, had, had an upstairs and then the main floor with this great room and it was all connected to the kitchen and huge high cathedral ceilings in the great room. And then had a full finished basement, and so we have four kids, and so I thought that was great because we could just lock them downstairs and not have to listen to them all of the time. Not that I'm an unloving father, but there are just days when I've heard enough screaming. And so it's like it was just going to meet, it was just going to fill all of our dreams, and it was on five acres, and it was up at 973 feet in elevation, and I wanted to get up close to 1,000 feet in elevation so we could finally get some snow. And I was just, I mean, everything about it was just perfect. It had a nice big big shop, a two-bay shop, and it had concrete floors and an attic that I could turn into an apartment and maybe rent and have some residual income coming in. It was just, it was just the perfect house, and we worked, and we worked, and we worked, and we fought, and we wrote letters to the owners of the house who were getting foreclosed on to say, hey, this is our dream house. Is there anything you can do? And we submitted offers, and we submitted another offer to the bank, and we kept raising our offer to a point where we couldn't afford the offers that we were making. We just wanted this house, and in the end, it just all fell apart. We sold our house. We were renting my grandpa's old 100-year farmhouse. And now all of a sudden we're asking ourselves, where do we go from here? Well, this isn't an uncommon feeling 
This is actually a feeling that, that we have experienced throughout history. And we're going to look today at the disciples who have experienced the same thing. Oh, my notes are upside down on the back side of the page. That's going to be distracting. I'm not that good. I can't read upside down. But we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, and that's an awesome story. We're going to kind of focus on that. That's going to be the center of everything. But today I want to look at the disciples and their perspective on this whole situation as it unfolded. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 20, and this is all going to be in your app. So if you want to open it, some of it will be on the screen, but most of it I just want to read to you and kind of share this story, this timeline of the disciples' journey as they were following Jesus all the way up until the crucifixion, and then we'll go after the crucifixion. But in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 28, we hear this story, and it's James and John, and they sucker their mom into come and asking Jesus this question, say, hey, um, her mom, mommy, mommy comes and says, would you let my son sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? Now, to us, we may not really understand what she's asking, but, but what she's asking is that her sons would be able to sit in the positions of highest power in the coming kingdom that Jesus was, was supposed to be bringing. And so she was saying, hey, we know you're the, you're the man, you're in charge, but will you give my sons the right and the left so that they can sit next to you and have it? And so since it was actually the sons that probably put her up to asking this question, it's as though the sons were saying, hey, if you're going to be the king, let me be your commander. If you're going to be president, let me be your vice president. That way, you know, if something happens to you, you know, you know, knock on wood, but if something happens to you, then I'm next in line and I get to rule the new kingdom, right? That's kind of the thinking that was probably going into James and John. We assume that they're really, you know, spiritual men, but we see throughout the, all of the time leading up to the cross that they still hadn't quite gotten the idea of what the new kingdom was going to be. And so here at, we just kind of have this idea. They want the position. They want the power in this new kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Jesus had just foretold his crucifixion verses before, and then two of his closest followers were more concerned with their, where they would be in the chain of command. They're hoping for a revolution. They want to be a part of the coming revolution that Jesus was going to bring. He was going to come, and he was just going to overthrow all of the stuff that was wrong, and he was going to put in the new kingdom in Jerusalem, and they wanted to be right at the very epicenter of it all. We're going to go back from this event a little bit, actually quite a bit, and go to the transfiguration. And here we have Peter, James, and John. The same, same brothers were there. And they go up on this mount, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took him, with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. This means that, that he was kind of, he was visible between two different realities, between two different realms, between heaven and an earth. He was transfigured between those, and they saw it, they witnessed it. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. No launderer on earth could whiten them this way. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were all talking with Jesus here on the mountain. Peter, we love Peter, he's bold and not afraid to ask for stupid things, and he says, Peter, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. We like it here, so let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, so we can just kind of stay here and be in the presence of these great figures. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. 
As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Well, they seized upon this statement that Jesus had made, and they started discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, what is it that the scribes say that Elijah, why do they say Elijah must come first? And he, Jesus said, well, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus says, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So that was John the Baptist that he was speaking of. Elijah had come and prepared the way for Jesus, and look what happened to him. They cut off his head, and so he's starting to paint the picture now to his disciples. Hey, this might not go as you think it's going to go, because I am going to suffer at the hands of men, and he says that many, many times. But the idea here is that they're looking for this sign that they knew that when Elijah would come, that he would actually start to restore the kingdom. The reality was that no one recognized Elijah when he came as John the Baptist. And not very many would recognize the Messiah. In fact, he would be crucified. Moving along in the story, we're going to move to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And Jesus is telling a parable. And there's this little interesting phrase that, Jesus, that is mentioned in this, in this parable. Before Jesus tells it, it tells why he's telling this parable. Is everyone still kind of hanging with me? I know we're, we're kind of plodding through a lot here. But, but Jesus is telling a parable, an illustration that he's going to try to illustrate something that's going to happen. And the why sticks out to me because it says, because they were near Jerusalem... And people thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So here, all of these followers are coming in, and they're thinking the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately in Jerusalem, and they're waiting for it. And there's a significance here, and that is that Jerusalem was expected to be the place where the king would restore the kingdom of Israel. Micah chapter 4, verse 8 says, the former dominion shall come here in Jerusalem. And so this is what they're expected because they had been hearing about it for hundreds of years. And so they're saying, the king is going to come, and we're expecting he's going to bring the kingdom into Israel. But the reality is a lot different. The reality is the parable that he was about to share, which was that the kingdom of God will spread like the minas in the parable, and the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Though it is a very small seed, it grows and produces a big tree. See, Jesus was giving them, the, giving them indicators all along the way what it's actually going to look like. They just weren't wanting to hear because they were sidetracked by their own idea of what was supposed to be. That takes us to Palm Sunday a week before the resurrection, which we're celebrating today. And if you know the story of Palm Sunday, you know that, that Jesus came in on, on the foal, on the colt, and he comes in, and he's coming into town, and there are people lining the streets, and they, they're waving palm branches, and they took off their cloaks, their outer garments, and laid them down on the street, and they started shouting these psalms that, that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these have some great significance for what is taking place because when someone in that time would take off their cloak and lay it down on the ground, it would represent that that crowd, those people were submitting to Jesus as their king. And they're saying, you are our king. Come in as you, weigh, as you will. And the palm branches represented Jewish victory. They represented the, the victories that the, the people of God had, 
had had in the past, and they would use palm branches to celebrate that. So it was as though they're saying, this is the victory. This is our king. He is coming in to restore Jerusalem. And the Psalms signify that the crowd is recognizing Jesus as the son of David, saying, Hosanna, which means save us. They're saying, save us, son of David. But the reality, the reality is that in less than a week, the same crowd that was hailing Jesus as their king would be demanding for his crucifixion. And not only that, when they had the opportunity to release Jesus from that prison, who did they want? They wanted Barabbas. Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Well, we don't know a lot about Barabbas except for what's mentioned in the Gospels. And here we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 7 through 11, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. That's what we know about Barabbas. But I think we actually know quite a bit about him from that statement. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release Jesus to you? For he perceived that it was out of envy from the chief priest that that he had been delivered up to him, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd and had to have him release Barabbas instead. Barabbas had been a part of an insurrection. He had been part of something that was trying to overthrow the government. And though this isn't in Scripture, this is what I can maybe infer from this if you allow me. It says, it says though, they thought Jesus was coming to bring the revolution and he was going to overthrow everything. And if Jesus isn't going to do what we want, then give us Barabbas because maybe he will. Give us Barabbas. And that takes us to the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 27, we read that a great multitude followed him, weeping and moaning. We don't know exactly what disciples were there at the cross. We know that John was there because we read that in the account in the gospel according to John. So we know John and his mother was there. And from this verse here in Luke chapter 23, verse 49, we also know that his followers watched these things. They watched the events of the cross from a distance. What were these things that they watched? Well, they saw Jesus hanging on a cross, dying a criminal's death between two criminals on a mountain called the Skull. What did they see? They saw the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' undergarments. They saw Jesus being mocked by the rulers, the chief priests and the religious rulers hurling insults at him. If he is the Christ, let him save himself being mocked by the soldiers. Save yourself! Even being mocked by one of the criminals hanging on the cross. If you are who you say you are, save yourself and us. Get us down off of these crosses. But imagine his disciples who had been following all of this time and the hopes and the dreams that they had that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom as they had been hoping and that Jesus was the one bringing into Jerusalem this new kingdom and he was going to restore all of Israel just like it had been foretold for thousands of years that this was finally the Messiah had come and he's going to restore everything. And now the disciples hiding out of fear in the corners and in the shadows of what and fear might happen to them and what they see is 
their king is dying as a thief. Their dreams being a part of the great restoration of Israel were now gone. Just imagine yourself as part of that crowd and you're here. You had been following Jesus and you wanted him to do what you thought he was going to do and now you find yourself watching this King of kings and Lord of lords, Hosanna, save us. And now here he is hanging on a cross, dying, breathing his very last breath. And he utters the words, it is finished gave up his spirit, and died. Can you, that is the worst ending ever. It's awful. I mean, this was the guy, and now he's dead. I mean, can you imagine, you've spent three years of your life following the guy that you thought was the one, and now what's happened in a 24-hour time span? It all went wrong. You thought Jesus was the one, but now he's dead, and he didn't just die. He was crucified and humiliated. Where do we go from here? What, what do we do now? I've just wasted the last three years of my life. I'm never going to get them back. That was a sucker punch below the belt. It's one, of those, it's one of those things you never recover from. It changes you forever. Jesus has said, I am the resurrection and the life, but now the one who said that is dead. Jesus was the breath of life, but he just breathed his last. He's the alpha and the omega. He's, he's the beginning and the end, but he just ended. What a waste. What a waste. But here's the thing. This was an end, but it's not over. Jesus said it is finished, but this wasn't the finish line. Jesus may have breathed his last, but it wouldn't be his last breath. So what the disciples thought was the finish line was really just the starting line, and what we thought was the end of regulation was really just the pregame warm-up, and what we thought was the end was really just the introduction to the whole story. See, we kind of have to go back and kind of get the story from Jesus because it all starts to make sense if we start to realize that he had been saying these things all along. John chapter 12, verse 24 through 25. You should have this one on the screen. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. First uh, Corinthians verse 15, or 15, verse 36, Paul is talking about the resurrection, and he's talking about the final resurrection, but, but he gives an illustration here that pertains to what we're talking about. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be just a seed, perhaps of weed or something else, but God gives it a body as He has determined. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. The seed had been sown. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed with lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember, he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be, live, be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And they remembered his words. It is finished. Wasn't the end. With the Father's breath, he murdered death, and he began history all over again. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose victorious. Death had been defeated, and what the disciples thought was the end was no end at all. It was the only beginning of amazing, amazing things that were to come. What amazing things? Well, let's go look at the amazing things. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 11, gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, listen, they, they just still don't get it, right? They're not quite grasping what he's talking about. They're asking him, Lord, is this the time? Now is it the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this what we've been waiting for? And he said to them, hey, it's not for you to know the times which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way which you have just watched him go into, he into heaven. They thought the kingdom was going to be a political empire that would take power in Jerusalem, but Jesus had something much, much bigger in mind, something they wouldn't be able to do on their own. They would need supernatural help. Jesus ascended. This is what he, had to, what he had to do. He actually had to ascend, and this is what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit because as we're learning right now in this very moment, the cross is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning, and the resurrection is also not the end of the story. It's just another beginning, and that takes us on to next week what we're going to talk about. But Jesus said, I have to go so the Spirit can come, so the Holy Spirit of truth can come. The disciples wanted Jesus to come and build a kingdom, but Jesus had to leave he had to leave so that they could be empowered by the Holy Spirit of truth to build the real, the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom they wanted, but the kingdom of God. Well, what's next? Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. The Spirit comes 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, it was a festival. There would have been people from all over there. There were all, the Jesus followers were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Whoosh. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to, the, to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues and other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Listen to that. He had just said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here, at the sending of the Holy Spirit, what happens there were devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they're all drawn together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language, and they're amazed. These are just Galileans. We know they don't speak our language. How is it that they're speaking to us in our own language, and how is it that we hear each one of us in our own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, those who were not born Jewish but they became Jews, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Wow. The Spirit came with a loud noise. It drew a crowd from the ends of the earth, mind you, and the crowd hears of God's power in their own language. And then what happens next is amazing. It should just blow our minds. Peter, who was the one that had said all of the stupid things, all of a sudden, now that he's received the Holy Spirit and he now has the Spirit of truth, he boldly preaches that truth, and 3,000 people are saved, and the kingdom of God just starts to explode. And then finally, been waiting for it all of this time, for years literally, we've been waiting for this to happen. Peter and John finally start to get it. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter is speaking. He says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Listen, this is where we know that he's starting to understand what's going to happen. Verse 21 of Acts chapter 3, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Ah, finally, he gets it. He understands. God had a different plan, and God's plan is going to be a lot better because we see in the first seven chapters of Acts that the kingdom is going to spread through Jerusalem like wildfire. And then in Acts chapter 8 through 12, we're going to see the kingdom spread through Judea and Samaria. And then in 13 through 28, we read how the kingdom literally starts to spread to the ends of the earth with Paul as the missionary taking the gospel far and wide. And you know what? That's still not the end. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is preaching to the people at Ephesus through this letter who were Gentiles and had no chance of being redeemed by what Jesus had done, and they were at the ends of the earth. They were at the remotest parts of the earth. They were not connected to anything that had happened. He says, remember, that's how you were. You were without God and without hope in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, 
So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to this, because what the disciples thought was over was just the beginning. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, they longed for a day when God would dwell with his people, but now because they had finally gotten it and because they had received the Holy Spirit, they became the foundation for what would become the church, which is what we are a part of now. Listen to this. At the time of Jesus' death, the population of Jerusalem during a feast like Passover or maybe during Pentecost, there may have been about maybe three to four million people in town. Three to four million people. That's a lot of people. That's, 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 that's if all of the Jews who had been scattered abroad because of all of the exiles and all the things that had taken place, if they all came back to Jerusalem, maybe three or four million. Today, built on the foundation of the apostles, there are over 2.2 billion Christians with a B around the world. See, the disciples wanted Jesus to come and bring the kingdom to Jerusalem, but he said, nah, I got something better in mind. Let's try this. What they thought was the end was really just the very beginning of something, something so much greater than they could have ever imagined. We have to learn from the disciples. We have to learn from their story because what we might think is the end this morning is really just the very beginning. You might think it's all over. You might think everything has come crashing down and now life is at a standstill and it's just stopped. It's over. There is nowhere to go from here. But what you think is the end is actually probably just the beginning. And this today might be your new beginning. But as we see from Jesus, the New beginning can only begin when something ends. And I think that's where most of us get hung up. We get stuck here because we think, well, you know, it's my life and I want to do what I want with my life and so I'm going to make the decision about what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. You can have your Christ. I am my own me. But this life, this life, that we have now is nothing compared to the life that you will have in Christ. But you can only have this life if you lay your life down. You see, if you do lay this life down, if you lay it down just like Jesus laid his down, now I'm not telling anyone to go crucify themselves. Don't do that. But if we lay this life down, God can produce in and through you something so much greater than you'll ever be able to produce on your own strength. 
And see, maybe you've been striving and you've just been kind of fighting and, you know, it's just like you're trying to climb that corporate ladder and you, you work with all of your might to reach up and grab that next rung and you finally grab a hold of it and it takes everything you can and everything you have to get up there to even just hold yourself where you are. You have no strength to even get to the next one. And with all of your striving, that's as far as you can get. And it's the same thing with our righteousness and our desire to be able to get to God is that we think, I can strive and I can work hard and I can be a good person and through my own good righteous works I can get there. I can do it. I'm just going to keep striving. I'm going to I'll just I will get there eventually. Don't you dare say I can't. But you know what? You can't. You have to lay down your own striving. You have to lay down your own life. You have to finally do like Jesus did and sow that seed into the ground. Why? Because if you do, God can produce. He can produce 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. God can do in and through you so much more than you ever think you could do on your own. Why not just lay it down? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus is talking, and he says, if anyone's going to come after me, if you're going to be one of my followers, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? Sometimes we think we can strive and we can earn our own place and our own righteousness with God. Other times it's just we like the world. We like all of the stuff that's around us, right? I mean, sin is fun. If sin wasn't fun, then it wouldn't be enticing. No one would ever want to go sin. We just wouldn't do any of it. It's just, so we, well, I don't want to, I don't want to lose that. See, we have it in our minds that if we lose that, we're just kind of signing up for a life of torture and Everything is going to be awful, but what we don't really understand is that actually God has a resurrection life in store for you and that He wants to give you His life, which far surpasses anything from this life that you could ever have. So what is it that's holding us back? So Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be one of my followers, you have to deny yourself. What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> I want to deny myself. I'm the most important person in my world, so why am I going to design myself? But Jesus, fully God and fully man, he came from the Father. He was God. Matthew chapter 26, minutes before he would be arrested and handed over, he's praying this prayer. He kept going further, deeper into the garden, deeper into pray with God. And as he's going deeper, he goes a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. See, Jesus was fully God and fully man and at least in the humanity of who he was, he knew through the God portion of what he knew that something awful is about to happen and 
If any of you were about to go through the same thing, we'd be praying the same thing. We would be praying just like Jesus prayed to the point of sweating drops of blood. God, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to go through this? Why are you going to do this to me? But he ends every single prayer that he prayed in that garden with this. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, is to deny yourself, to say, you know what, not my will, but your will. I don't want this, but you have a better plan. I want something entirely different, but it must not be what you have for me because you keep slamming those doors shut. So I just don't know, but so not my will, but your will. I, I don't want to follow you today, Jesus. I don't want to be your, be your servant and whatever it is that you ask me to be, but you know what? I'm willing to finally start taking that step and saying, not my will, but your will. Lead me where you want me to go, and I will follow. And if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, you don't just follow him into his death. You follow him into his resurrection life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, we think to follow Jesus to the cross is to follow him to death, and death is the finish line. Death is the end of everything. You know, why would I want to die? It's all over then. Well, that's not really what happens. To follow Jesus to the cross is to also follow him to his resurrection life because that's who he is. Not just what he did, but that's who he is. That's how he defined himself. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And so to follow Jesus to the cross is to follow him to his resurrection life and his resurrection power. And now you get the chance to actually, really, for the first time, live. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Don't worry, we're nearing an end. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. The question. What needs to die so that Jesus can bring about new life in you and in me? Are you ready for the ending? Are you ready for the end so that finally God can bring about the beginning that you've always been waiting for and hoping for? Are you ready for an ending that far exceeds your expectations? God says in His Word that He can do immeasurably, abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Are you ready for this new beginning that's going to exceed anything that you have in the here and now? Or I have to ask do you want to keep wasting your life? That's all we're doing when we're striving 
to achieve and acquire our own righteousness. It's just wasting. Why not lay this life down so that God could do immeasurably, abundantly more with it than we could ever imagine? It takes us all the way back to the very beginning. We have to ask ourselves, are we like the women at the tomb? Are you seeking the living among the dead? Are you looking for life among death? Are we looking to try to find and squeeze some semblance of life out of something that never actually lived? Are you looking for the living among the dead? Are you stuck in this rabbit hole and then this sphere and cycle of death and you just don't understand why nothing good keeps happening? It's like the world continually falls in on me and I'm caving under the pressure of this awful, torturesome life. Why does God hate me so much and keep torturing me this way? Well, you know what? He actually loved you enough that he wanted to give you something much better than that. And so the way to get that is to actually finally put this life to death and say, you know what? I'm done with that. Give me the new life. I'm ready for it. And what you thought was the end, because death is always an end, right? I mean, when someone dies, it's over. We never see them again. But what we thought was an end, when we finally die and death brings its death, then God can actually start to come in and He can take over and He can bring in this resurrection power and this resurrection life. And now you have a new life in Him like you would never imagine. And what He wants for you is not only to save you eternally in the future that is yet to come, but what He wants right now is that you would be transformed into the image of His Son and that through the work of the Holy Spirit, and you, which you receive when you put your faith in Christ, now you have the opportunity to live a new life, not by your own power striving to get there, but by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit of God living in you, and now you get to live this new resurrected life in Christ. Doesn't that sound a lot better than that? Are you looking for the living among the dead? Or are you ready to begin a new life in Christ? We do things a little bit differently here at our church in a lot of ways, but this is one of them. Many of you may have been to a church where they did communion and you weren't allowed to take communion if you didn't believe what communion was, but here we don't believe that's an accurate teaching of that scripture that they use to, to support that stance. And in fact, we believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was for all of us, was for all of you, whether you believe or not. And so we offer this to you as a symbol of his undying love, that he shed his own blood and he broke his body for you. Before we take communion, I just want to maybe issue a challenge. You've got a connection card, and I'd love for you to maybe pull that out during this next song that we're going to sing and We'll take our offering and we'll be done. By the way, it's an absolute miracle of God that it's only quarter to noon. I fully anticipated it to be about 3 o'clock. But... <laughs> so God is real. Amen? Yeah. But uh, maybe you're ready to die, and this is that symbol for you, that you are now willing to follow him into his death, and that by following him into his death you might re retain and attain a resurrection like his. 
that you're willing now to lay down your life and say, I'm done with this life, I'm done with this striving, I'm done with this trying, I'm done with all of this work, I'm done with the sin, I'm done with the world, I'm done with everything this world would throw at me, I'm just done with it, I'm going to die to it, my own ambitions, my own desires, and my own dreams, I'm going to lay it down finally, once and for all, put it to death in the soil, and let's just see what God does with it. So we offer this to you as that symbol, as that step. Maybe you want to take that step today and you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's really as simple as believing that, that that old life is nothing I want anymore. But I did sin, I did do wrong things, and I need a Savior, but Jesus is my Savior. He paid the price for all of that wrong that I did on that cross. I believe, I not only believe in what he did and I not only believe in the fact that it took place, but I believe in such a way that today, from this day forward, I'm going to reorient my entire life around him and his teachings and I commit my life from this day forward to being his disciple, his follower. I am his and he is mine. And if you want to take that step today, I encourage you not only to take communion with us, but to write it on a card, talk to me after the service, talk to Jim, Russ, Rob, any of us after the service, and we would love to just talk to you about this new faith and this starting line that you just started on this new journey. This is the very beginning of all that God has in store for you. But we remember, we remember what Jesus did for us on that cross and how he paid the price for our sins with his own body and with his own blood, how he became our Passover lamb the once and for all sacrifice needed. And that night that he was betrayed, he was eating dinner with his disciples, and during that meal he took the bread and broke it and passed it to his disciples and said, as often as you eat of this, eat in remembrance of me. Later in the evening, after the dinner and after all the festivities of the Passover had taken place, they, he took a cup of wine representing a new covenant he was making with us, a covenant based on what he would do for us on the cross, not on what we could do for ourselves to try to earn our salvation. He's giving us this new covenant, and he says, as often as you drink of this cup, drink in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you. I am so overwhelmed with gratitude at what you did on our behalf. I thank you that that in this room, not only are there those who already believe and are on this journey, this new life, that are experiencing this new life in Christ, but I thank you for those who are maybe weighing and, and wanting to make that decision, but just not sure. But I pray if not today, that then in the next days and in the weeks ahead, that you would remind them of what was done for them. In fact, remind us all, let us all remember what was done for us. That not only did you die, but that we follow you into that death, that we may receive this resurrection life, and that this king who rose from the dead, this resurrected king, is now resurrecting me, and he is giving me new life day by day as I follow him, as I trust in him, and as I walk with him. And this newness of life is nothing compared to the old life that I am leaving. And Father, I thank you that we get to be a part of this new life, that we get to be a part of what you have been building for millennia, for thousands of years 
years now, we get to be a part of the grand story of the epic, grand, almighty kingdom of God. And I thank you that in this room, we are a part of that kingdom. And I thank you that we get to celebrate. I thank you for all of us gathered today getting to celebrate that. And I pray as we leave this place that you would shock us to the core with that truth, that we would not be able to leave this building and go back to live the same lives that we lived before we came in, but that you would live this resurrection life in us now from this point forward, and that we would be changed by the power of God for the glory of God. And I pray as we pass these offering baskets and give of our tithes and offerings, and as we give of what God has blessed us with, the abundance that he's given to us, and as we give back to that, I pray, Father, that you would use every penny that comes in for building your kingdom here, that we may show and tell and live in front of the world that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not dead. He is risen. In Jesus' name.